0: For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Abu Baker 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 whatever edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, and we're here without Tomorrow, cough, with us. Which means just the, the boys' party. Comes out. Which means cheers. Cheers. We're we scotch drinking scotch when Tammy's away. The scotch will play. Uh, I'm here, uh, joined this week, filling in for tomorrow. Our good friend Wells Bennett. Hello, Wells. Again, hey, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me, my, my Bloomingdale uh, compatriot. Uh, I'm heading home after this. Maybe we can catch a ride with you. Let's do it. All right. Uh, and we're also here with Ben Wittis. Hello, Ben. Hey, Ben, who um, knows. This is going to be very interesting for the purposes of a podcast about the week's news because Ben has been locked in some kind of like news-free, sound-free, internet-free, cave-like thing for the past two days. Where have you been?
1: I have been uh, for Wednesday afternoon and all day yesterday, starting quite early, in uh, a secure compartmentalized information facility at the Joint uh, Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon uh, Is this the new
0: journalist Gitmo? Uh,
1: no, actually. So this, I was I was <laughs> there uh, in my um, as a participant in the first ever symposium uh, or conference run by the legal advisor to the Joint Chiefs, and it was a discussion, uh, one and a half day discussion of. Uh, a concept that the Pentagon has been throwing around recently a lot, called hybrid warfare, hybrid conflict, and so here's the here's the conceit of the conference, which was fascinating and involved. I mean, they brought in it, there were it's under Chatham House rules, so I can't say specifically who was there, but there were four agency general counsels there, um, as well as representatives of a whole bunch of allied countries um, um, in both Europe and, you know, sort of Five Eyes uh, allies and uh, Middle Eastern countries. Um, And um, so they all came to discuss this idea that the Pentagon has been you know, has shown up in Pentagon strategy documents that there is, you know, traditionally state-to-state conflict, and there's, uh, you know, civil wars, uh, what lawyers call international armed conflict, and non-international armed conflict. But recently, we've seen a whole bunch of uh, what the Pentagon calls hybrid conflicts. So. Chinese fishing boats that are clearly sent by the Navy into the South China Sea for military purposes and kind of backed up by, by naval vessels, uh, Ukrainian separatists in eastern Ukraine mm-hmm. who are, you know, are they separatists backed by Moscow right. or are they actually Russian uh, troops, right, little green men? Um,
0: Non-state actors, but kind of acting like states or with states.
1: Or at the behest of states, states, right? As well as... Patriotic hackers in China, maybe. Patriotic hackers in China and Russia are another uh, uh, example. Uh, As well as these layered conflicts like Yemen, where you have multiple state actors and non-state actors involved simultaneously, and Syria. And so the Pentagon has been throwing around this term Um, hybrid conflict. And the question that the lawyers started sort of really struggling with and were interested in and kind of convened this symposium to discuss was how does this map on to the legal architecture of international humanitarian law, laws of war, which sort of assume that something is either an international armed conflict or a non-international armed conflict. And so it was a really interesting sort of set of discussions uh, that uh, on a set of subjects that I'd really never given much thought to, I uh, learned a lot. And why
0: would did this have to be held in a skiff?
1: Because uh, the Pentagon's conference facilities are skiffs. <laughs> it was it was all at an unclassified level. I love it. Um, so
0: everything it was unclassified. This could have been held at Brookings, but no, it could, it, because it's at the Pentagon. Every conference room is a skiff.
1: And moreover. Everybody needs an escort every time. You know, you, somebody has to go to the bathroom; oh, wow. they have to be escorted. So you could check so, your email. You could do um, anything like th- I mean, there was. A, it is not a convenient location for uh, an unclassified conference, uh, but it was uh, actually completely fascinating and really interesting to get a sense of, you know, what the what the Pentagon clients are asking. You know, what, what the scenarios are that the Pentagon clients are you know, sort of asking for legal guidance on and how that you know, creates sort of novel issues for lawyers to think about in, in the IHL and non-IHL space.
2: Can I ask you something about that? Obviously without asking about what was said. But I suppose that if you look back at the last however many years when there's been an, op- an option for choice of law some people have complained and said well there's been a really opportunistic, some opportunistic choices made by the United States that if you don't have this much detention authority available to you in this kind of conflict well you analogize it to this other kind of conflict and you say well we do that isn't one possibility if you have a severely hybrid conflict something very multi-layered involving a traditional civil war a non-state actor and then these private parties gussied up uh, as such even though they have the backing of a state that you'll see more opportunistic use of international law?
1: Well, so, right, so the one of the big fault lines in the discussion was between people who sort of hypothesized that the legal frameworks are not adequate for this problem and people who said, wait a minute, it's, it's really not, like, not different from anything else we've dealt with. It requires translations of principles, uh, but those principles are still the right and really the only necessary principles, it's just a question of the application of them to complex and difficult fact patterns um, I think the weight in my view, the weight of uh, opinion was on the latter side mm-hmm. um, and uh, I tend to share it with the single caveat that I don't think cyber fits neatly into that um, and I'm actually, as we speak, writing uh, a little summary of my thoughts on the thing, which will be up on Lawfare later today. Cool. You're right.
2: capable of doing two things at the same time. Well, as not, we speak. L- I'm
1: not literally typing as we speak, I'm literally drinking some scotch as we That's speak. definitely two that's, things. That's, that that's, how, that's how
2: we multitask.
1: Locked I think we up have, in, I think we have our priorities. That's how we multitask. In line here on rational
0: security. Uh, okay, so this week on the show, Donald Trump reveals that he doesn't know the names of the heads of the world's biggest terrorist organizations. Does that disqualify him to be Commander-in-Chief? Donald who? Yeah.
1: Who? Who? We've never talked about He's this. He's kind person. of low energy. <laughs> yeah, he really is. What a bore he
0: is. Yeah. Really, yeah. Donald, yes, Donald Trump has finally made it onto this podcast. That's how you know he has to
1: We're, we're, we're gunning for ratings now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a tipping point Rayfion, for somebody. Rafeon, you know, keep your <laughs> eyes Rayfion, open, Donald Rayfion. Trump loves you and <laughs> our podcast. Uh, also, it turns out that killing Anwar al-Awlaki was an easy decision for President Obama. We're going to talk more about that. And can the House of Representatives sue the president over the Iran deal? Plus, in Object Lessons, how our lives would be different had 9-11 never happened. Uh, so let's go with wordplay first. I will start. So Donald Trump was on the Hugh Hewitt at radio program recently. Uh, and uh, Hewitt sort of quizzed him uh, on whether or not he knew who is Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, and, you know, I think Trump called him like Abu Baker something or other and the candlestick maker. Uh, You know, really just kind of flubbed it and and really was sort of um, dismissive of the idea that it was important for him to know who the heads of these major terrorist organizations are, uh, saying that he would find the right people who would not only know who those guys were, but I'm going to go out there and find, his words, the next General MacArthur who's going to go take care of them. And I think he said something of, I'm going to do the military great, I'm going to do the military better than anybody. It was, it was an interesting Yeah, wait until you yeah, see when I get After he there. gets the Hispanic vote. I exactly. Mean, yeah. <coughs> it was interesting for me. It would be really good for yeah, minorities and women, too. <laughs> right. Um, Best
1: ever. So,
0: yeah, so my question ultimately is, okay, so, Donald, A, does it matter that Donald Trump does not know the names of these individuals. And with that, I also assume my other part of this question I want to pose to you guys is, A, it doesn't matter. B, he's clearly applying business philosophy and business principles to the idea of national government governance, such that I don't need to know about these things. I'll go find the people who can take care of it. Now, lots of CEOs and business people out there would say that that is not at all their philosophy to running a business. But this notion that I don't need to know particular details, I just need to know how to find the right people to do jobs. So I wonder what you guys think about this. Because aside from this sort of the you know this sort of carnival show of Donald Trump, he actually is pointing to a really interesting question of how much information do we really need our presidents to know about the enemies that we're
1: fighting. What do you think, Ben? Well, I'm old-fashioned. Um, I think it is actually important for the president to know something. <laughs> and, um, and I don't think expecting the president to know who uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi is, is too much, given that we are you know, at war in a meaningful, kinetic sense with the Islamic State. And I also don't think it's unreasonable to expect him to know who Ghassan al-Sulamani is. Mm-hmm. Um, and now the latter may be a little bit more forgivable. Uh, we're not, after all, at war with Iran. But, um, you know, I, I think presidents have to synthesize enormous amounts of information and make uh, complicated choices quickly and expecting... To treat that like any sort of learning curve in a um, you know in taking over a business is a very false analogy, but here's what I also think I also think it's really important to have a president who doesn't have contempt for the question
0: mm-hmm. and
1: more than the fact that Donald Trump doesn't care about you know. You know, d- d- apparently doesn't know anything about the people in the region whom we're in conflict with. I think the, the the scarier thing is that he seems to think that that's not an important thing for a president to know because a president can simply have staff who knows where, who we're at war with. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, particularly if you take into account that Congress is not. Congress has essentially delegated to the president the ability to decide who we're at war with. The idea that the president is then delegating that further to some unelected, um, unelected lower-down people who are just kind of the right people to decide. That, by the way, was never General MacArthur's job. Right. Um, you know, <laughs> It was not General MacArthur's decision that we were at war with Japan. Um, and I think that is a, 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 a sort of appalling thing for somebody who wants to be president to say. It, by the way, on the list of appalling Donald Trump things to say, <laughs> it's relatively low on right, the list. Right. Um, but um, I, I can't see an argument for, for presidential ignorance of basic contours of our security situation.
2: It, it would be different too if, it, it's not as if some, he's, this is someone who has some track record of giving a damn about these sorts of things and is then asked off the cuff to name the prosecutor at the International Criminal Court or something. Right. This is a guy who when you put his answer to this question alongside his answer to other questions his whole approach to this project is The people who've run the country to date have been losers. He's a winner. The work is pretty easy, uh, and you just need to let him do it because you've all been a bunch of idiots for not realizing that he's the right guy to do that heretofore. So I completely agree. Yeah, he doesn't actually know who this person is, and that's bad. It'd be good if you knew who these people are that we're at war with, uh, or I guess against whom we use lethal force or whatever. but it's all part and parcel of one big kind of proud ignorance that um, yeah. <laughs> at least uh, maybe if there is some sort of other person for whom a comment like that in a certain context might not sort of send shil- you know chills through your yeah. spine. But for this guy, it's just part and parcel of his own, you know. Excitedness about being a total rube on just about every issue.
0: There's, I like your 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 turn of phrase, and it reminds me that we have we have a phrase for this in our house, which is militant ignorance, <laughs> yeah. and I think that really captures Donald Trump. And I mean, I, I'm a with you guys. I think it's absurd that he would not know, you know, who the head of ISIS is. I mean, that that really speaks to somebody who is not even like paying attention to the news. Um, and, and, but I also think that this, this this idea that he is. Putting forward that is really the heart and soul of his campaign. I agree with you. It's that a running a country, being a president, is not that hard. And he's certainly, by the way, making looking for president, running for president, look not that hard because he hasn't mm-hmm. had anything approximating the organization and the infrastructure that other candidates have spent a long time running. It may turn out to be that he's found the new model for running for president, but running for it president. May, yeah, m- maybe so. But like, but but this pre- this premise that you know all we have to do is supply business principles. Uh, to running a country, it's. I mean, I spent the first part of my jur- journalism cur- career writing about the whole business of government and business-like government movement, and they're very different things. Public administration and private administration are just totally different things, down you know to the basic levels of the incentives that are in play, to the constituencies, to accountability. Starting
1: with the fact that we let businesses fail. Exactly, we, we would not you know, let At a country the end of the fail. day. The Department of Housing and Urban Development doesn't get to go out of business if it's not effective.
0: Right. And, and this is another thing he's talked about is I'll just shut these places down. I mean, the degree to which he asserts things that he would even be able to do as president, which he would not politically and probably legally in some cases be allowed to do, also underscores the degree to which he doesn't even understand how the office to which he's running actually functions.
2: Yeah, this, 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 to me, it harkens back to his, this is actually from the last time he ran. Oh, this is it, Well, this reminds me. It's not also as if he's Johnny Come Lately in this respect. He's been this gadfly in, pre- in Republican primary circles for right. how two or two or three cycles. I can't remember, but the last time he was doing this, the last time there was a Republican primary, you know, he was asked to explain how he would confront the Chinese about, I think it was currency devaluation. He said, you know, I would just get up on their face and say, "Listen, you mother," you know. As if, as if the president of that country is going to be like, you called me a loser? Right. As if this oh, is the I'll thing
0: that no one's done yet. Oh, it's like, man, oh, We haven't tried hurt that. hurt my
2: feelings, dog. Right. I'm totally going to stop doing that thing with my currency, right. and I'm going to start, stop spying on all your networks. <laughs> my bad. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. This, uh, we'll wrap this up. But it also just gets to my basic question about Donald Trump, which is that, is he actually, is he seriously running for president? Because these are not, these are not the statements of a
1: serious person. <laughs> well, except that everything that hasn't worked for anybody else you know anything that everything that's been negative or disqualifying for other people has kind of helped him and i think you know when you're running 30% in the polls you're by definition seriously running for president because you know, time but does, is, but time is ticking believes. in Iowa and New Hampshire.
0: I mean, does he really th- – I mean, that's I, 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 what I'm saying. Well, is He like, believes he is awesome. I know he believes that. But, like, yeah. every other person who's running, I really do think, honestly, is like, I really would love it if in the end I were elected president. I'm not so sure he has that goal at all in mind and that this isn't just a uh, – uh, uh, what started as a stunt and now has turned into something between a stunt and an and, and intentional, you know – Campaign. If what, yeah,
2: if what you, you mean to suggest, he might be one of those people who projects this kind of, like, he does project this cartoon macho confidence. Yeah, yeah. But he might be the kind who, having projected that, like, secretly goes to the bathroom and weeps because they think that someone didn't like a remark they made. Oh, I'm sure he's. Yeah. I don't
1: think that's him.
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, I maybe know. he's the kind of g- who who gets, get, takes the oath of office and then realizes...
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. I think Barack Obama had that moment, too. But okay. <laughs> um, okay, let's go on to uh, your wordplay, Ben. Uh, so, it, taking out Anwar al-Awlaki, American citizen with a drone, instead of trial. No problem.
1: Well, so and I... And that's
0: for President Obama, not President Trump.
1: Right. So, I, uh, last week, on, uh, as my object lesson, I brought Objective Troy by Scott Shane, the new book on the Anwar al-Awlaki case. Mm-hmm. And I have since read it, and first of all, I can tell you uh, where the, uh, um, the name Objective Troy came from, which you had asked about last week, and um, it was the, so it turns out that um, the uh, military, when they assigned people to the, the kill list, gave them uh, a name of a town in Ohio, um, to designate the target. Also, um, oh, like each person got a name of a town in Ohio. Exactly. So Ohio the CIA Ohio. didn't bother with code names. Scott writes, but the military insisted on them. Perhaps calling them objectives objectified them, helped distance the hunters from the human beings they were trying to kill. The way Middle Eastern males in FBI memos become MEMs, military age males. Um, and civilian dead become CD for collateral damage. The military's choice of Ohio was one of the random facts that made Pentagon nomenclature so opaque. Perhaps it had even been the whim of an anonymous military planner with roots in the state. In al case, the name was a little town of 25,000 in the western central part of the state, notable for a collection of houses made from welded steel product of a 1930s experiment in prefabricated housing. Officials said the name was chosen at random. al had become Objective Troy.
0: That's fascinating. Um, so, that's so who it. is Objective Cleveland?
1: Uh, what, Dayton, I sure.
2: Dayton and Akron too with the Ohio rock scene. I
1: Objective. <laughs> so uh, it is uh, I can say this now. A, a, a truly excellent book. Uh, one of the really really fine pieces of narrative reporting about uh, post 9-11 American counterterrorism um, you know there are nits that I would pick with it some of which I did in uh, my review that I wrote on it um, but basically I think Scott's uh, gotten a huge amount right um, He, I learned a lot um, about the operation and, and and about Alauki himself in particular um, and sort of how he evolved uh, from this moderate um, kind of guy who wanted to be a bridge builder between American Muslims and uh, um, between America and the Muslim world Mm. and somebody who really wanted to destroy America. And I think Scott also resolves not 100 percent but to a high degree Residual questions about whether Al was really involved in the 9 11 plot and uh, concludes, without quite saying, I think he really concludes that he was not yeah. and that he genuinely was shocked by it and that he genuinely opposed it and ended up leaving the United States for reasons having essentially nothing to do with the FBI's investigation. Of him for terrorism, but with the fact that the FBI had found out that he was frequently visiting prostitutes and um, was afraid of kind of ruinous publicity, like um, his rep being damaged. Exactly, and that so his the the implication of the book is really that he didn't leave America because he radicalized. He radicalized as a result of marginalization from America. Um, and so it's, I, it's a very interesting and subtle, uh, among other things, portrait of a person uh, who could have gone in a lot of different directions and uh, ended up going in this direction, uh, a very dangerous direction, a tragic direction for, uh, you know, the country, for himself, for his family in particular, um, but that there are a lot of what ifs, and this, this was not a person without substantial talents and, um, and who could have played a very different role in life than he ended up playing. So, does he take the view that, that it was not a righteous act to kill him or a legal act? I mean, so he doesn't, um, he doesn't really opine <clears throat> on whether it was the right thing to do or That's not. I think he. The implication that I get from it is that he thinks there are a lot of problems with the drone program, but doesn't. But notes that within the government, this was sort of a matter of unanimity that this, this is, uh, there was not a substantial dissenting view. Hence, why um, it was an easy call for Obama. Uh, Obama regarded it, and, he qu- and Scott quotes him describing it as an easy case, um, and that. He reports that within the interagency discussions, there was essentially no dissent from it, and that wow. the uh, OLC opinion that was written was not really challenged by anybody, including Harold Coe. Um
2: Can I ask you something about? I've read the excerpt about the prostitution charges, and I was just going to ask you just to say a little bit more, having read the book about you know the suggestion is is it's really this at the root of his you know this is what causes at least Al-Aki's departure from the United States and has a role in his radicalization. Obviously there's a huge discussion underway these days. We had a piece up on the website not too long ago about the excessive use of inchoate liability statutes, for example, pushing people where you don't need to push them and maybe that's playing a role in radicalization. There's this whole cottage industry out there countering countering violent extremism. Is this book suggesting that basically maybe prosecutors need to tone it down, that the FBI might need to tone it down a little bit because there are people who could play a constructive role.
1: So I don't think, to be fair, I don't think the FBI, you know, set out to investigate his use of prostitutes. Mm -hmm. The FBI had a legitimate reason for investigating Al-Alauki, which is that he knew two of the hijackers, right? And and, And there was this real question about, what his relationship was with, you know, to the 9-11 plot itself, um, and whether he was, you know, some sort of a sleeper agent. And so they ended up following him and surveilling him. They did not notice any, any evidence of terrorism, but he was visiting a lot of prostitutes, and they gathered information on that in the way that you would gather information, I think, on sort of anybody you had under pervasive surveillance, there was a discussion, a serious discussion, about whether to bring charges against him uh, for transporting prostitutes across state lines. Uh, they decided it would be a weak case, uh, that they would only be doing it to get at him, uh, really for you know other reasons, and they decided not to do it. Uh, but he did find out about it, and he then got very spooked and leaves the country. Now the implication isn't that he there, he radicalized in response to that, but he goes to Britain and you know he's then this this preacher out of a job, right? He's not representing a moderate American Muslim constituency anymore. He's not getting invited to the capital to he's not being asked to do interfaith dialogue, all these things that are really Moderating, disciplining presences in the United States. He's not being asked to do. But there's a real market for the angry, you know, much more radical. And so part of it, the implication is that. Almost you, market pressure. Exactly. He's, he's sort of over time, market pressures, the response to him in different environments kind of pushes him in different directions. And I think feeling abandoned by America, pushed out by America, may have played some role in that. It's a very subtle and supple portrait of it, of him. He doesn't uh, Scott doesn't draw any firm conclusions, but I think he makes a he makes a very powerful narrative. It's not really an argument, but the narrative arc is one um, that suggests that the departure from America was more cause than effect of the radicalization.
0: Hmm. That's fascinating. Um, I can't wait to read it. And um, it is
1: out now. It's not it really uh,
0: I think it's out. All right. So we will check it out. And congrats, Scott. Um, <clears throat> okay, Wells, let's turn to, uh, to your wordplay. My wordplay is uh,
2: a district court decision there was uh, in the news yesterday in the case of United States House of Representatives versus Sylvia Matthews Burwell, better known as the Secretary of Health and Human Security. Uh, not for health and human Donald services. Trump, sorry, excuse me. Not right for yeah, not department. for Donald Trump. Amen.
0: Uh, Doesn't even know who she is.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah, she's not doing a job well. Yeah, he's going to do. The, he's going to be great on hum- wait till you see him in office. Wait he's gonna till be you awesome. see me on
0: Healthy Human Services. Wait till he's going to be awesome at Health and
2: Human Services, <laughs> and the current person running it is a loser. Uh, anyway, uh, the House representative Representatives sued... They're losers. Yeah, they're losers. Uh, they, they sued uh, the secretary of HHS in another Obamacare lawsuit. The question became whether people in Congress have uh, legal standing to do that. Uh, ordinarily, when legislators do those moves, the answer is a sort of quick and emphatic no. Uh, this district judge, uh, Judge Collier, uh, concluded that in this particular case, a piece of the lawsuit could go, go forward. What interested me about it uh, was quickly uh, online and uh, just looking around, there were law professors and some people talking about what this might mean for a legislative lawsuit uh, to kind of throw, uh, slow down or frustrate uh, the final stages of the Iran deal.
0: So can Congress sue the president to block the Iran deal? Yeah, I actually saw... And are
2: there such suits? Oh, I mean, yeah. Legislators have brought suits over time to try and muck around in foreign affairs. There's... The biggest one, uh, sort of biggest example at the top of my head is there was a suit uh, brought by Barry Goldwater against President. No, no, Carter no, no. no. Many, but many I mean, ago. are
1: there suits to stop the Iran deal? Not that I'm aware of.
2: So far as I know, I don't believe so.
1: So this is a sort of hypothetical. This point. is a
2: hypothetical thing. But I it's mean, one
1: technically,
0: this week it only became a fact that it was going to go into play. Yeah, so. I
2: think there was. It was. Yeah, they only knew it might even come to up for voting a couple of days ago, right? Right. right. Yeah. In The
0: Senate's not going to go in the Senate, so it's done deal.
2: Right. Uh, but anyway, I quickly saw this. It's just a district court opinion. It's not the law. Uh, certainly not a Supreme Court opinion, it hasn't even been blaster by the appellate court. Uh, but it was quickly sort of analyzed as a possible precedent for a lawsuit by the House against, uh, I suppose, the president or someone in the sort of maybe the State Department. I don't, I'm not even sure who the defendant would be. We have to look at it. But whether this created standing for the House to do that, uh, I saw you know a couple blog posts about it. And uh, it was just a, uh, it just really interested me, just because of the way the reasoning this that was in this opinion. It seemed to say in so many words that when Congress complains that the president has violated a statute or you know used uh, authority wrongly, the House of Representatives whole can't complain about that. But when the president does something that directly undercuts a congressional power that creates an institutional injury which gets you into court. And I actually think that distinction is probably not terribly stable. I'm not mm-hmm. even sure that makes sense. But in <coughs> this case, it was that, I, I, if I read the case right, that there was something about appropriations. Congress had said, here, you, we're not giving you money for X, we're giving you this money for Y. And part of their claim was is that I think Jack Lew, who's one of the other defendants in the case, had misused the money or sort of something like that. So that could go forward because we're not giving you the money for it, we decided not to. Then you took the money for something else, but you used the money for the. Sounds like a grand contra. Vaguely, yeah, it sort of had this kind of like don't mind the harbor aspect to it. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh,
0: like, could, would I have standing as an individual to sue the government over the American? under these
1: under these circumstances? No. Probably. You have to be able to assert an individualized injury. Right.
0: One
2: one that a court would be able to remedy with By b- a legal rule stopping a deal. Right, and. I don't know. I just saw this. What if
0: I am making tons of money off sanctions?
1: That's a a really interesting question.
2: When you say making tons of money. I don't
0: know. Let's say, like, the the sanctions put one of my competitors out of business, and, uh, you know, great for me, and then suddenly the sanctions get lifted, and that guy's back in business, and then
1: I'm, you know, out of business. That's a better case than the House of Representatives.
2: (laughs) (laughs) On the merits, it's probably, it's got a little more, yeah, basically just to spin this out, here's what I read. I read on on the Volokh conspiracy, I think it was, the idea was, is if this distinction between direct frustration of, say, the appropriations power and mere misinterpretation or even violation of statutes holds up, I think it wouldn't, I think it's bogus, I think when this goes to the appellate court, they will destroy it. If it holds up, the idea then became, well... You could sue now if you were the House of Representatives because the President did not transmit these side deals that we've heard so much about and the transmission of all the documents pertinent to the deal was the condition precedent for the beginning of the review period under the review statute. And since that hasn't happened yet, effectively have frustrated Congress's participation in its approving, disapproving, or doing nothing about the deal,
0: right? Oh, I see.
2: Uh, The problem being that To my mind, that is a statutory violation. So if this lawsuit, and I saw someone else wrote something along those lines, too, uh, out there, basically saying that that looks like a statutory violation. So if anyone's getting excited out there about this legal theory, it seems that they're complaining about the very thing that this decision says doesn't give you standing.
1: And that's before this decision gets reversed on the other point.
2: Yeah, I think they probably get the printer warming up at the D.C. Circuit for this one. But All right. that is my wordplay.
0: Okay. Well, that, that's fascinating. I, I would love to see somebody actually try and sue over this. They're,
1: keep it alive. Wouldn't get lo- Wouldn't get very far. And truth be
0: told, I'm actually sick of writing about the Iran deal, so let's not give them any
1: ideas. Um, okay. Why don't we move on to uh, object lessons? Uh, ben, you want to go first? My object lesson in the famous rational security log rolling department is my new book, um, so, Pietro Navola, my, my uh, now-retired Brookings colleague, and I uh, have edited a volume entitled What Would Madison Do? The Father of the Constitution Meets Modern American Politics. We, uh, it's a series of essays by a group of scholars about various aspects Is of... John Roush in there? John Roush has an essay. Um, we, it's a, a series of, of, of essays by a bunch of different scholars on a range of topics uh, related to sort of application of Madisonian thought to modern American uh, political system. You know, what would Madison have thought of the filibuster? What would Madison have thought of the modern educational system, of, of the healthcare debate? Um, but uh, Ritika Singh and I wrote a chapter about Madison's sort of vacillations on issues of uh, national security and executive authority and how they kind of parallel. Modern America's vacillations on uh, those areas. Uh, so this is the last chapter in the book, um, and it will be of of some interest, I think, to a number of readers of of uh, listeners of this podcast, particularly those who are interested in uh, early American history. Uh, very uh, uh, some interesting material in there about the uh, changes that Madison went through from being uh, an advocate of enhanced executive authority and enhanced national authority at the time of the Constitutional Convention to being a deep critic of it during the Washington and Adams administration when he saw Hamiltonianism to being a kind of executive who tried to kind of live with a rule with a very limited conception of executive power to finally being a wartime president who, you know, expanded, revitalized West Point and expanded the Navy, created a standing Navy really for the first time uh, and really built the military back up. So what would Madison do about Iran? Uh, I don't know. There's (laughs)
0: No <laughs> that, I just, on that. I
1: just don't know. I oh. you know, there it is. Okay. What would he do about the high price of gas? Uh, he'd he'd cut it. Okay. Not that it's high. Price, price. controls. <laughs> he, sure. Madison would do everything that I think is a good idea, and nothing. And me too. And he would oppose everything that I think is a bad idea. That's
2: the way I've always felt about the founders. I've really liked.
1: Yeah. The founders. <laughs> I I can, I double dated with the founders. You know. I I know what they believed. Oh sure.
2: Yeah.
0: Uh, well, do you have an object?
2: You know, I only have two of them. Uh, actually, I you know, I really have two of. them. Yeah, I don't really have an object. I have an empty <laughs> glass of scotch, and I have an empty <laughs> cup of coffee.
0: Excellent. I think that's. I think I that's a perfect object for you. A perfect, as our guest. I'm Not I sure say, it's a lesson. That's <laughs> not a, it's not a
2: lesson. No, it's not a lesson. But they're two objects. They stand before me. They bookend. They in a way they bookend my day. Yeah. They you are. Start per- with the- they, they start are, with
0: a coffee and end it with a shot. That's about as profound as they go. That's okay. It's funny. Right. There we go. <clears throat> um, well, I have an object, and I ate this guy, and I'm actually asking you a couple of qu- guys some questions about this. But uh, so, my object. This is actually a photo. Uh, it's not the photo, but it, it is a copy of the photo that I've had uh, uh, basically sitting next to my desk, not in a prominent, like showy kind of place, uh, for about 14 years now. So this is the anniversary of 9/11, and uh, this is a photo taken. Uh, I, this, this is maybe actually from New Jersey but of the two famous uh, Mm -hmm. beams of light that were going up into the sky after 9-11, after the um, uh, Trade Center uh, uh, came down. And, you know, I I keep this sort of, for me, not as a sort of patriotic symbol or anything like that, although I think it's perfectly acceptable as one uh, as well, but um, kind of just as a reminder for me professionally uh, of kind of where my career actually, I think, began Uh, And I think it's safe to say that for me, absent the 9-11 attacks, I probably wouldn't be a journalist still. Um, I I don't know that I would have uh, taken to journalism as a trade and as a discipline uh, as much as I did had I not been intensely interested in the subject matter of national security. But also, just by benefit of where I was working at the time in a set of circumstances, my job went from being a technology reporter to a national security reporter Fairly quickly, and it was because of the 9/11 attacks. Because where I was working at the time, there was nobody really covering intelligence and in these new areas that um, were not emerging, but were suddenly, you know, important once again in a way that they had not been uh, uh, in the post-Cold War era, which is when I began my career as a young reporter. Um, so it got me kind of thinking, and you know, we always talk about you know how the course of history has been changed by that event. Um, but for you guys, how do you think that your your lives, professionally or personally, would have been different if 9-11 had never happened? I mean,
2: I don't know, counterfactual, I can tell you, like just about every... I mean, it, it was impossible not to be an American on that day and have your life yeah. not forever altered. I yeah. But,
0: but like the course of your professional life, even, too.
2: I mean, the I was part of this... A group of people that basically was, you know, exploded overnight. Who responded with a big, you know, a mix of patriotism, but also an interest in the legal structures that were going to govern our response to this whole thing. Yeah. So, I began to follow that as soon as con- as soon as I was, I guess, in graduate school, and I've pretty much followed it ever since. Yeah. Uh, in that respect, that's a probably a direct line for me to be.
0: Would you have been a lawyer? Or so, or I've mean, gone to law school.
2: Maybe. Uh, my parents are both lawyers, but their their lives and their trajectories were so different. One of them you know thinks being a lawyer is the best thing since sliced bread, and the other one sort of ran from the profession screaming and yeah. you know as a high school teacher but uh, yeah i i also just on a personal level, it was like i my wife and I worked at the the woman who is now my wife uh, and I worked together in d c just around the corner from the white House we weren't married yet we weren't even together yet so but, you know, we were both sort of deciding, I, I went to school here and I stayed here afterwards and we were both trying to figure out if this is some place we want to stay for the rest of our lives and, you know, bulk of it. We both figured that out and then the attacks happened, so, I mean, it's all bound up together, I suppose. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's impossible to imagine counterfactually, but I can see, well, based on what did happen, a pretty clear line.
0: Yeah. yeah. What about you, Ben?
1: So I think I, I think it's much easier for me to imagine a, a counterfactual, which is because I was already sort of doing my career. I was an editorial writer at The Post. I was kind of a legal affairs writer. And 9-11 turned me into a national security legal affairs writer. Mm. Um, and I think it's, you know, I I don't honestly know if... I would have I had some background in national security law before 9/11. I had done some research, uh, some work on surveillance law in the 90s, but so That's um, when you went to visit the Pfizer court. Exactly. But it was not a dominant feature of my career trajectory at all. It was one sort of subfield of it. And this really pushed it forward and pushed everything else back. And um you know before nine eleven my book project, I wrote a book about the history of the Ken Starr investigation. you know like that seems like a long time ago now and um, and so I, I I think it indelibly affected everything that i 've done since and um, and I find it very hard to put myself back in the shoes of somebody who 's just kind of generically interested in writing about law. Now I think of myself as somebody who's much more specialized who who yeah. writes about law and national security and you know, that's been the last 14 years.
0: And, just, and there'd be no lawfare either.
1: There certainly would
0: be no lawfare. No way. No. And, it's, and, it's just and a little, no rational security. There'd be no rational security. And this is a quick kind of wrap up on this too. Are you all, now that like, <clears throat> so we're all three people who were not doing anything really in national security, and now our lives are very much a part of that, and it's all because of that event. Are you surprised by the fact that 14 years on, this subject is still as central to the discussion about American life?
1: No, I'm, I'm surprised no. that it isn't more central to the discussion of American life. I, I, I think it's amazing how quickly we have returned to a quite normal and quite blithe uh, uh, ignoring of threats and series of behaviors that are as almost as complacent as the behaviors in the And you l- say we, well, mean
0: American society, not the yeah. government. Correct. Really? You feel that way? Yeah, well, I
2: mean the people. One of the themes I think in our in this little world is that if you look at kind of the central, you know, wh- how central are these kind of legal architecture type questions to the government? It's not as if 9/11 happened and all of a sudden. We kind of all got lawyered up and statutes emerged or something. Sure. You know, sure. the real, you know, the especially how to characterize the conflict with extremism, how to deal with, you know, how to deal with people, what forum you use for trials. You know, things like that, stuff that is much, much older than 9 11. You know, I, if you look at that long history, you can probably, it is, it starts to be kind of surprising that you see the, the, the interest in it, at least in public, going down. Huh.
0: I don't know, I guess I just think of it as something that is. Just like a central part of like anxiety and
1: paranoia about being an American today. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's, <laughs> f- maybe it's because I just look at it every When everyone's day. out to get you, paranoia is just good thinking. That's yeah, right. right. Uh,
0: okay, uh, that brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our other shows on our homepage, uh, spaghettiandthewallproductions.com you can follow rational security at ratl security on twitter you can check us out on facebook whenever you download the podcast from itunes or your favorite iTunes uh, app uh, t- t- podcasting app uh, please Abu leave a, so- al- pub- bu- bu-
1: yeah, podcasting. a podcasting Abu or i'll put the podcast yeah whatever the podcast is what happens when you give shane
0: some scotch <laughs> exactly but. and make me talk about donald trump uh, please leave a rating and uh, make sure to tell your friends about the podcast as well uh, our editor for the podcast is Jen Howell. Our music was performed by this week This week by Donald Trump and I'm Where I'll Go Fuck Yourself <laughs>
1: <laughs> That was lame <laughs> No it wasn't
0: That was good Argo. No I'm Where I'll Go Fuck Yourself that could be Argo. His name. That's what yeah. Donald Trump would call him Totally. What's that guy objective Tony um, I don't know who he is <laughs> <laughs>
1: Too much scotch for these days.
0: That's probably true. It's Friday. Uh, On behalf of my good friends, Wells Bennett and Ben Wittis, I'm Shane Harris, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening.
1: Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.